0: we are in a series of messages that we're calling Saturate. And we are going on a journey through the book of Acts. And it will take us some time, but we're in some regard taking our time as we go through it because there's just so much to mine out in God's Word here. And we've said you know, this idea of Saturate is this idea that in the book of Acts, we see the beginning of the church and we see the Gospel not only go wide, not only to, the, you know, to Jerusalem, to Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, but we also see it go deep. We see the Gospel go deep into people's lives converting them transforming them and changing their lives and last week we began to ask this question in acts 2 so how does the gospel go deep and wide and what we see in acts chapter 2 after pentecost when the holy spirit comes is we see that the gospel goes forth through proclamation and demonstration so last week we looked at the importance of the the proclaimed gospel we got to speak the word to one another we need to sit under the word being preached because god's spirit does something through it and this week we're looking at the demonstration of the Gospel as uh, the sermon's entitled, A Snapshot of Grace. You know, it's Mother's Day and I can't help, uh, I'd be remiss not to, to talk about my own mother. Um, for those of you that don't know my story, um, I grew up in a single parent family. Uh, my mom raised me. Uh, my father's alive and involved in my life uh, to the best of his ability. But my mom basically raised me. And uh, at the age of uh, 13 or 14, somewhere in there, um, Some guy, God brought some guys in my life that ended up leading me to Christ and um, completely changed my life. I mean, I was this extremely bitter and angry young man. I mean, I remember getting thrown out of Rec League basketball games as a fifth grader. I mean, I was just, I had it all stored up and all built up inside. And, uh, and so the gospel was beginning to change my life, changing the trajectory of the friends I'm hanging out with, changing everything about my life. And I can remember one night sitting on my, uh, Futon, yeah, had a futon. Sitting on my futon in my room, the most uncomfortable piece of furniture known to man, right? Sitting there, my Bible on my bed with me. Now, at this point, I don't even know that I really knew how to read the Bible like Jake was talking about. But I had a Bible in my room and I would occasionally glance through it. And my mom comes into my room that night and she just sits on my bed and starts crying. And uh, it was just kind of this strange situation and she kind of whispered, Ryan, I, I want the life that you found. I want the life that you found. Whatever's happened to you, I, I want that in my life. And I'm a 14 year old. My mom's probably around 40 at the time. and I, I didn't really know what was happening and so we, we kind of just sat there and, and and prayed together. I'd, I'd never experienced it. No one taught me how to lead someone to Christ. It just God just converted her kind of on the spot in my room. And it wasn't until months later that I actually realized what was going on. And what she later testified to was this fact. That Ryan, I saw a snapshot of God's grace in your life. I saw a snapshot of how God was working in your life. And I just wanted it more than anything. I wanted the Jesus that you had found. Not the Jesus that was, you know, so super religious and far off. But the Jesus that you knew to be personal. I wanted that more... Than anything in my life. Today we look at a still frame in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. It's the first summary of the life of the church. So picture it like this you know, you, you can watch a video of something and you have to pick and choose what you're going to pay attention to in the video, or you can look at a snapshot. And you can go into great detail about the intricacies of the painting or the picture that you're looking at. you can look at every angle. So that's what we're going to do today is we're going to look at the snapshot of God's grace that's presented to us in Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47. So if you wouldn't mind standing up in honor of God and His word, if you're able to, and I will read God's word for us this morning. Acts 2:42 through47 says this, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are so grateful for Your Word. Uh, We're so grateful for this picture of Your grace. Father, this is not something that is to be remanufactured. Uh, This is not something that man can do. Would You teach our hearts this morning that when we release ourselves to the full power of who Your Spirit can be inside of us, that this is the natural implications of what happens in the life of a Christian. Father, would You give us an earnestness to experience that in our relationships and in our relationship with You and our relationship with Your people. So God, go before us this morning and speak truth to our hearts. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. As my mother... In hindsight, looks back and says, hey, there was a snapshot of God's grace that I saw in your life that was compelling to me. It was compelling. I, I wanted to experience it. My question to you, and the reason why I think we all need to hear this this morning, is what if God were to do the same thing in your life? What if your life was so compelling because God's Spirit was all over it that others began to ask questions about what you appear to uh, obtain within yourself? What if that was possible? I think it is. As we look at this today, I think I pick up on three rhythms of the church, and this is kind of the outline of where we're going today if you're a note taker. And the three rhythms of the church are devotion to Jesus and one another, fellowship with Jesus and one another, and generosity toward Jesus and one another. So let's dig into the first point here. The Scriptures say that the disciples were devoted to one another. There was a sense of devotion in their lives. So in Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to what? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So there's one thing. To fellowship and to breaking bread and prayer. So worship. They devoted themselves to three things. Apostles' teaching, fellowship, and basically worship. So this is interesting because they had to devote themselves to the apostles' teaching because you got to remember, these are good old Jewish boys. Good old Jewish boys and girls. So they had known the law and the prophets from the Old Testament. But Jesus is the fulfillment of all that. So they had to, in some ways, they had to unlearn all of the things that they had learned in the sense of seeing Jesus as the fulfillment of all those things. So they had to devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. so there was a, a sense of humility. Have you, have you ever been around someone before that, um, that thinks that they know it all, and if it's you, don't raise your hand, please, that would be embarrassing. But you've been around someone like that before, right? Well, there was a, there was a, there was a hint of humility in these first disciples because they said, "You know? We know the law, we know the prophets, but we want to see Jesus as King. We don't want to see the things that, that we've always seen before. We want to see Jesus as the fulfillment of all of these things. So they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And they had to be, they had to be rewired in a sense to see Jesus as king. And, and that, that phrase devotion, it's interesting because the word devotion implies effort, does it not? It implies effort. There, there, there are people that I know, and I've been this person at times in my life, that, that are frustrated that we, we don't get the sense of God's presence in our life that we'd really like to have. And the thing is is that yeah, salvation is a gift received by faith through grace. But there is effort involved, and we see this in the disciples because they devoted themselves to the teaching. They were in the Word. They they did whatever they could do to get in the Word. They they had to get the Word in their minds because they wanted to grow in Jesus. They wanted to discover more of who they are in Him if this man is now giving them life. So they devoted themselves. They had to make time. And a lot of times, here's here's the common narrative that I hear with folks in Atlanta, all over the U.S., I mean, everywhere, is that I'm pretty busy, right? We're all pretty busy. And and the thing about busyness is kind of a catch-22, because I think a lot of times we can find our identity in our busyness. We we can find our identity. I am a busy guy. i got a lot of things going on. Look at my calendar. But the reality is is that we always make time for what's most important to us. We always make time for it. So if there's something that's really important to you, you're going to make time for it. And and, and a lot of times the the caveat for a lot of people is, oh, it's work. Well, there are a lot of jobs. If your work requires 80 hours of you a week, maybe it's time to find another job. I mean, I don't know. That's not like prescriptive for you to do. but, But if we're devoted to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship with one another, there's a sense of effort where we reorient our life around God instead of asking God to reorient his life around us. See the difference there? This is who Jesus is. He's the centerpiece of our lives. He's not just an accessory anymore. He's the, he's the centerpiece, as Jake talked about. Our life is reoriented around who Jesus is. So they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. next thing they devoted themselves is to fellowship. I'm going to talk about that in the second point, so we're going to skip over that at this point. Next, they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread and the prayers. So this is really interesting. Uh, I'm going to read Acts 2.46-47 just to remind us of what kind of what was happening, where we got this from here. It says this, and day by day, so, so not like once a month, or not even like once a week, day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, so there was a both and, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. So, in Jewish culture, there is a rhythm of praying at least three times a day. Uh, every Jewish male is, you know, I mean really, it's, it's, it's law for them. They're supposed to pray three times a day. And on, and on holy festivals and feasts and things like that, they pray even more. And so, notice that they don't completely abandon those Jewish customs. So they're still going to the temple. They haven't said, hey, we're getting out of here. But they're seeing Jesus as the fulfillment of what the temple was supposed to be and the Holy Spirit then making us the temple, as Paul would say. So, so, that, so they're living within this culture and not abandoning it. And I, and I have to believe that they're doing this so that they can win those who don't know Jesus yet. They haven't completely abandoned that culture, but instead they're living in it in a redemptive way. And so they still, they're still committing themselves to the prayer. They're just praying in Jesus' name now because He's the Messiah. You see, these guys are worshiping Day by day. And, and the way that they do it is they attend the temple, so there's this, there's this significance of, of being together in one place, like we are this morning. Where else in the world, let me ask you, it's where else in the world do a group of people that look, look around, a group of people like this, get together and have something in common? I mean, maybe at a concert or something like that, but we're not like worshiping God together. I mean, this is a very significant thing. This is evidence of God's grace. Where else in the world does this happen? So there's a... There's an importance in gathering together and these disciples continue to do this. But there's also this worship that extends beyond the meeting. And the meeting manifests itself in people's living rooms. And it, you know, communion for these disciples was around a meal. So they would have a meal together. Justin Martyr says basically the way that went down is everyone would bring something, yeah, everyone would kind of bring their bread, their food, they would bring it to the table and they would all share it. Because they had everything in common, is what the Scriptures say. They, 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 they devoted themselves to one another, and they, they, they made time for one another because it was the most important thing to them. They made time to worship God. And what they in turn saw was they were becoming worshipers of Jesus instead of self and stuff. Because out of the box, out of the womb, guys, we are going to worship ourselves, and we're going to worship the stuff. Around us. That's what we're going to give our lives for. And all that was being reoriented, reoriented because of their, their generosity. So they're, 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 they're kind of cutting the head off the idol of, of materialism by giving away their stuff. And they're, they're kind of cutting off the head of the idol of individualism by having people in their homes and being hospitable and opening their entire lives, not just their Sunday morning, for Jesus to get a hold of. And the thing that you notice is that Jesus... He grabs their life. He takes a hold of their life and He becomes everything to them. This is why what I tell our small group, our missional community that meets in our house, is once a month we have a rhythm where we eat a meal together. So we don't, we don't have a big Bible study. Uh, we may spend a little time in prayer, but we just have a meal together. I believe that having a meal together is one of the most spiritual things that Christians can do. You know what we're doing when we have a meal together? We're getting around a table, looking at each other in the eye, and saying we've got one thing in common around this meal. The fact that we need to be sustained. We need to be nourished. And this food, we believe, is going to give us that nourishment. So right now, this is all that matters. Is, is the fact that we need this nourishment. We need this company around this table. It's the most spiritual thing that we can do. And this is why Jesus says, hey, I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me, he's not hungry anymore. He, he says in, in John chapter 4 when he's meeting with this Samaritan woman, that, that, uh, that he's, he, you know, he's a spring of living water that, 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 that she won't thirst anymore if she drinks of the grace that He has to give. This is who Jesus has come to be. And every day, or pretty close to every day, there was a reminder of God's grace. They reoriented their life. They had, they had jobs. I mean, they had to have jobs. They had money. They, they were giving things away. But they, they made time for God's people in their life because they knew that it was an essential part of the equation. For growing up into Jesus. I've said this before and I'll probably keep saying it till I die. There's, there's one formula to spiritual maturity one formula God's Word, God's Spirit, and God's people. You take any of those out, you cannot mature in Christ. It's, it's absolutely impossible. <clears throat> I think we become, as we share life together, like little mirrors of the gospel to one another. So, what's a mirror do? It reflects who you are. It reflects an image back to you. So what we do is we remind one another of who God is and what's important in life. Because we said a couple weeks ago that we don't, really, we don't really know what to value in life. God's Word teaches us what we should value in life. And when we gather together, we're reminded that God is changing us and that He has not left us and that we are together. And we have, we have everything that matters in common. That's the beautiful thing about it, I was thinking this uh, week about worship and worship in the home, and something that I think is lacking um, in our culture is this idea of family worship. I'm reading this little book by Donald Whitney uh, called Family Worship, and if you're interested, that's a great little book to grab. And uh, in it, uh, Matthew Henry is quoted, and he says, "Every every family ought to be, as it were, a little a little church." Little church, and then there's this instance where Susanna Spurgeon, who is Charles Spurgeon's wife, uh, writes a a a biography about her husband. And here's a quote from from that uh, from from what she wrote about him. It Says this: After the meal was over, an adjournment was made to the study for family worship. Now, maybe you don't have a study in your room or in your house. It's fine. And it was at these seasons that my beloved's prayers were remarkable for their tender childlikeness, their spiritual pathos, and their intense devotion. He seemed to come as near to God as a little child to a loving father. And we were often moved to tears as he talked face to face with his Lord. So you hear this and you say, Ryan, okay, I'm, I'm the spiritual household of this family. I'm the, I'm the father of these children. The, the husband of this wife. And I know, that you've, I know that God has called me to be the spiritual leader, but I don't know how to do it. I don't know what to do. That wasn't modeled for me. That's that's what we say, right? My question and response is this: how much have you devoted yourself to figuring it out? In my life, I've had to put some strategic men in my life and I've begged and pleaded that they would invest in my life because I have wanted so much for my my family. This is my prayer for my kids that they would see, they would see me on my knees. And see, Jesus is the most beautiful thing in my life, and that they would remember that I came that close, that it seemed like I came that close to God in prayer. And they would, they, would, they would desire the same things. But many times we'll just kind of put it off and say, ah, there's other things to do. We can't really do that tonight. These guys said, hey, look, this is the most important thing that we can do. Like, more important than preaching to this church of people, uh, more important than pastoring these folks, more important than my nine to five is discipling my kids. And just like we'll do in, our, in, in, the, in the workplace, we will do anything that it takes to get the promotion, to take the next step. But for us, what if we put that same type of devotion into leading our family spiritually? What if we were to do that? What if we were to say, you know, whatever it takes, I'm going I'm I'm to get trained, I'm going to get discipled, I want to figure this out. I bet God will meet us there if we put that kind of devotion into it. What I've noticed about these rhythms is this, is that God... The, So the gospel changes our identity and then our activity. So that's why I said Acts 2, 42 through 47 isn't a call for us to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and figure out how to live as the church. But rather, it's seeing what God has done in in, in us through his son Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, and living out of that. It's not something to aspire to, it's something to be. The church isn't something you go to, it's something that you are. God is changing our identity, and then our activity flows from that. So let's look at this, just as far as the devotion aspects goes. Identity change. God devotes Himself to me through the gospel. God is relentlessly devoted to His children. Think about this. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter seven, one of my favorite passages in the Bible. Because I used to think, I used to think that, you know, Israel was just kind of this. I mean, they were like a special people, and like God. They, they, I mean. They were something. I mean, God, God saw something in them, and he was like, man, i got to have these people for my own. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says this, Deuteronomy 7, 6-8. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And listen to this part. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Do you know what makes God's people beautiful? Do you know what makes God's people significant? It's the love of God. And most Christians that I meet don't think that God actually loves them. I mean, I'll, I'll ask someone, what do you think, how do you think God looks at you? You know, maybe even when you've get, gotten caught in some kind of sin, even though you're repenting, how do you think He looks at you? And it's like with this look of disdain that He's disappointed and that He's, you know, he's going to come after me with a stick or something. That's not how God looks at us anymore, church. That diminishes the work of the cross. All the punishment for sin that you and I have incurred and we have incurred a lot. Enough for us to be dead forever. Jesus bore on the cross, all of it. And so we have the forever smile of God on our lives if we have faith in Christ. That's the gospel. That's the hope that we have in Jesus. We're all helpless wanderers, but we have a God who sets his love on us and and we're not good enough at sinning to get away from his love. Let me just say that. J.I. Packer says it like this, one of my favorite quotes, your faith will not fail while God sustains it. You are not strong enough to fall away while God holds you. You're not strong enough. And so what we do is we build up this wall and we say, I can't let God love me because I'm going to let Him down. And what we do is we resist the only hope that we have in the Gospel. And what the grace of God is doing in this picture that we get in Acts chapter 2 is He has melted away the unbelief in the hearts of His people. And it's as if they have all things in common. All the things that matter in life, they've got in common. And because of this work that God does, we have an activity change. Because God is relentlessly devoted to us, as Jake said earlier actually, we can abandon all other hopes and commit to Him. We can take the the, the safety net of, hey, if this doesn't work out, i got another option of, of living my life for myself. We can take that off the table because Jesus rose from the dead. It's good. It's to the bank. He's given us His Spirit. We're one with Him Forever. Jesus did not die, and don't miss this, for some future better 2.0 version of yourself. He came while we were still sinning, as Romans said. He saw us in our sin and He came anyway. And that ought to wreck our lives. I was talking to my friend Winston who's in town from Tucson. He's here with us this morning. And he was telling me this story about this Finnish man that's in their church. And, uh, you know, Finnish folks, I mean, they're they're not really emotional types of people, right? I mean, um, like up in like kind of the Scandinavia kind of area. I mean, they're pretty pretty pretty. I mean, I love them, but they're kind of I mean, they're kind of cold. They're emotionless kind of folks. And uh, he said that this guy became a believer. And he said this guy's like a this guy's like a multi multi millionaire, super wealthy guy. And he says that every time that he talks about Jesus, he can't hold it together. I mean, it will be like in a, with business guys in a business deal, and he just can't hold it together because the grace of God has so melted his heart because he's just, le- he's just, he's just, he's just, just kind of let God love him. What would it look like in your life right now to let God love you? To, to be able to receive grace instead of feeling like you've got to earn it. I mean, how does that make you feel to know that God loves you right where you're at and there's nothing that you can, if we call upon the name of Christ, there's nothing we can do to lose that. What does that do in your heart? Does that, does that bring a smile to your face? Or does that disappoint you? Do you want want a piece of the pie? Do you want to have to earn it a little bit? Is Is that how you find security in it? Well, Jesus has done all of the work. And that is a beautiful thing for us, church. All right, I'm preaching. Let's get moving on to point number two. So the second thing we notice is this, is that there's fellowship with Jesus and one another. And so Acts 2.44 says this, and all who believe were together and had all things in common. Let me ask you this. Do you think, 3,120 disciples in Jerusalem had all things in common? I mean, you think they were all like brothers and sisters in the same house? No, they didn't have everything in common. But the truth is, is that everything that mattered in life they had in common. Everything that mattered in life they had in common. So, what this means for me is that I should never be able to meet another Christian and say, "I, I don't have anything in common with them. But yet, time and time again, I do it. I don't commit to relationships with people because I think there's too much to risk there. Let me ask you this. What if our only explanation for this body at New City Church, these, these people that come together, these people that were once strangers that now call each other family, what if the only explanation for why we share life together and how we share life together was that the power of the Holy Spirit brought us together and we just have this thing in common that's Jesus and it's bigger than anything else in the world. What if that were the case? What if the world looked in and saw that? Do you think that would be attractive to an unbelieving culture around us? Do you think they'd want to be included in something like that? I think that our relationships with each other are the greatest apologetic or defense of the faith that we possibly have. And yet it's the thing that we do the least. What if we were together and and God made it like we had all things in common? What would that look like to the world around us? What if we were willing to take the risk to be Known. Now, Jesus isn't calling for uniformity here. He's just saying that the Spirit, His Spirit, births unity and it burns away all of the differences in our lives that lead to division. All the things that keep us away from His people. It burns all of that away as we come to Jesus. God changes our identity. God has brought me into a reconciled relationship with Himself through Jesus. So, here are the words of 1 John 1-3. This is, this is how God does it. "...that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us." Okay, fellowship with us, that's great. It's this word koinonia. It means common. And indeed, our fellowship is not just with us, but our fellowship with one another is birth through what? Listen to the second part of the verse with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. See, you know what's happening when we become Christians? We are being brought into the tightest-knit relationship in the history of the world, the Trinity. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We find our life now in the center of that with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit reminding us of the work of Jesus and what He's done and bringing those things to remembrance in our life. It's no longer quid pro quo for us. It's no longer, we, we no longer look at people as Christians and say, how can I benefit from a relationship with you? Or what can you offer me in this relationship? What can we exchange one another? Because that's what we do, isn't it? We, we consider the, the amount of time that we'll spend with people based on what we can get from them. The gospel takes that away and we're free to love people because they're simply made in the image of God. I mean, what if that was enough that they were just a human being? that we could love them, because that's simply what God has done to us. So for us, people should no longer be risks, but rather gifts to pursue, gifts to mine out, because we see that we can't grow in Christ without His church. There's no such thing as a Christian that is not a part of the church. No such thing as it. Because It's just slapping the face to Jesus. It's the bride of Jesus. I mean, it's like you saying, hey, Ryan, I like you, uh, but I don't like Megan. Now, none of you would say that clearly, but It'd be like you saying that to God. Hey, you, but your wife, get her out of here. There's no such thing as a Christian that has not committed himself to the life of the church. They can't get enough of Jesus. And the way to Jesus is through one another and His Word and His Spirit. So let me ask you the question today. What would it look like for you to take a step, to take a risk, to live in community, to maybe be a part of a missional community or one of these... Summer studies, we're doing them. Maybe you'll get into a discipling re- relationship and you say, Hey, you know, I don't really know what to do. I don't really know anything about the Bible. I say, It doesn't matter. All of us have been there. Every single one of us have been baby Christians. What would it look like for you to take a risk? Go out to lunch with someone and get a part of a community. What would that look like? Because that's the way to grow. Thirdly, this. Third rhythm of the church we notice is generosity. Generosity. Let me say that again. Toward Jesus and one another. Now this is this verse is kind of interesting because a lot of people refer to it as like Christian communism, right? It's not what's going on here. Let me explain it. So Acts two forty five, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Hmm. So what was happening here? Well, in the fellowship, there were some rich folks. In the fellowship, there were some poor folks. And the body took care of one another because Jesus was the centerpiece. Not their own empire that they were trying to build. And so so what? There's some rich folks. There's some poor folks. They're equally important, equally valued in the Kingdom of God because they bear the image of Christ being made in the image of God. That's what gives us value. Not what's in your bank account. Not how big your house is or what kind of car you drive. That's not what gives us value. What gives us value is that God has created us and made us. And Jesus has redeemed us. And now we're full sons and daughters of God. So they, what's happening here is God's love has pushed out all of the lesser loves of their life. Of self and stuff. God's love has pushed it out. And they... You know, they used to have this tight grip on all their material possessions and stuff, and now it's just kind of this open hand. It's like, God, this is your stuff. Do whatever you want to do with this. I want to commend several of you because I see you do this in a beautiful way. I have learned more about how to handle stuff and money in my years of life by planting this church than in any other season of life. Because so many of you do it so well. You're so generous, not just with your money, but with your time and with your stuff. I mean, you have people in your house, you know they're going to tear stuff up and get stuff dirty, but you welcome them in anyway because Jesus is that important. That He pushes out all those other loves, those lesser loves that we have. My friend Monty that uh, has done a good deal of discipling in my life told me about this story of one of his mentors this guy named, by the name of Paul Miller. He wrote this fantastic book called A Praying Life and a bunch of other books. And he said, you know, if if all that the Bible had to say could fit on on this one piece of paper about money, like everything that the Bible says about money, could fit on one piece of paper, here's what it would look like. On like three quarters of the page, it would say, be generous, be generous, be generous, be generous, be generous, and the footnote would say, oh yeah, by the way, be responsible in your generosity. But for some reason as Christians, we've got it the other way around. We're like, if I'm in a pinch, I guess I could be generous. I guess I could give a little bit away. I guess I give a little bit away of my time, a little bit away uh, of, my, of my stuff, of my, of my house, you know, giving it to folks in my community. But he says that's not the way that Jesus looks at stuff. That He takes it all because He has redeemed our lives. And here's the identity change that happens as we land this plane here. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though He was rich, and I mean, He was rich. I mean, not just like, like a billionaire. I mean, He was rich. He owned everything. I mean, He was with the Father in heaven forever. He was rich. Richest joker to ever live, right? Jesus was rich. Though He was rich, if for your sake, for your sake, Because He set His love on you in eternity past. Jesus became poor. And why would Jesus become poor? Why would that be worth it to leave that relationship with the Father and come to earth and be killed a sinner's death on a bloody Roman cross? Why would that be worth it to Him? So that you, by His poverty, might become rich. It seems to be that the generosity of the Christian is directly connected with what we believe Jesus to be and who we believe Jesus to be. So the way that we view our stuff and our money and our time is directly connected to who we believe Jesus to be. Now, that's a pretty strong claim. I get that. But I think Jesus goes there because in 2 Corinthians 8, Paul is encouraging the church to be generous toward uh, these these poor Jews in Jerusalem. So he's trying to take a collection for them. And Paul finds it fit to connect the resurrection of Jesus with our desire and ability to be generous with our lives. If Jesus owns it all, what do we have to lose? That's the question. If we have all of Jesus and Jesus owns it all, what is there to lose? There's nothing to lose. There's everything to gain. There's everything to gain. This is why Jesus says in Acts Acts 24, I think it's 16, He says it's more blessed to give than to receive. Now for those of you that have tested God in that, you've seen God show you that. And you know that it's better to give your life away than to keep it for yourself. You know it's better. And because of what God has done in Jesus toward us, because of God's generosity in Jesus, I'm free to live in a generous way. Church, my hope for you this morning. I'm sweating, man. My hope for you this morning is that you would actually believe that God loves you. Because I think if, if we actually take the risk and we step in to, to just kind t- of let loose and let God love us, to see Jesus as King, and to let Him, let Him lead our lives, I think all of these things that we desire with our lives fall into place. And I think that's the will of God for New City Church. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your your word. I thank you for this one of the richest pieces of scripture, the scripture, the whole Bible. I thank you for it. I pray that we would let go of ourselves, to be available for the Spirit to move in our hearts and our lives, and to take more dominion in our lives. So Father, I pray for those in here that are just honest. If they're honest, they say, look, I'm really devoted to my job. Or I'm devoted to the success of my kids. Or I'm devoted to this or that. And God, I just pray that they would, would, would change their devotion and make their allegiance to You and see all of those things fall into their rightful place. For those that are afraid to take a risk in this room with relationships, with sharing life with Christians, to, to be known... To know You and to be known by You. To know the church and to be known by the church. Those that are scared to take that risk, I pray that You would open their hearts and minds to see that there is no risk because Jesus has paid it all. There is only gain for us. There's only gain. And the only way to to get these gains in in Christ and and to, and to, to feel and know more of Jesus is through His church. Through His Word. By His Spirit. For those that that maybe struggle with just stuff, just a generous lifestyle. Maybe they're stingy and they, they would be the first to admit it. I just pray, God, that You would open all of our, our wallets, our front doors, and our hearts to live the kind of life that You lived for us. That while we were still sinning, You died for us. When we were in the act of sinning, You came on the cross. What a beautiful picture. Father, we're thankful for Jesus. Maybe magnified. His name we pray, amen.